Thank you for tuning in to this Spaces Discussion for Dementia Researcher. I'm Adam Smith. I'm the Programme Director at Dementia Researcher and based at University College London. And it's my pleasure to be co-chairing today's discussion with uh, the fantastic Kamar Amin Ali. Uh, Cam, do you want to say hello and introduce yourself? Yeah, hopefully you can hear me now. Yeah. Yes, great. <laughs> um, I had trouble with my mic there. Um, thanks, Adam. Hi, everyone. My name's Kama Amin Ali, and I'm a research associate at the University of Glasgow, where my research involves understanding brain injury as a risk factor for dementia. But I'm also a regular blogger for Dementia Researcher. Wonderful. Uh, so if you're just catching up on what we're about, Dementia Researcher provides a supportive community for early career researchers, uh, producing careers, um, content and science uh, news and um, hopefully supportive content, publishing blogs, podcasts, uh, curating jobs, events and funding calls and more. Our overall aim being to attract more people to work in dementia research and support those who choose this career path to remain. And we have wonderful partners in the NIHR, Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society. And we also work with some fantastic other uh, partners, the Alzheimer's Association and Race Against Dementia. Uh, it's with those aims in mind that all this week we've been uh, focusing on some of the challenges faced by postdocs, um, who we, of course, are also early career researchers, but particularly in dealing with uh, challenges of career progression, short-term contracts, and transitioning into independence. Uh, to round off the first week of this, first week of focusing on this topic, uh, I'm delighted to be joined by four truly inspirational professors from different areas of dementia research. They've all been through the pain, navigated the maze, um, and we're going to hear how they did it and get some advice from them. So it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Professor Claire Sir, Professor Tamarin Lashley, Professor Tara Spires-Jones and Professor Louise Serple. So Cam, over to you. Thanks, Adam. Okay, shall we start with some introductions? So if you could briefly tell us um, who you are and what you do. And let's start with something a little bit fun. So in an alternate reality, what would your career be and why? So let's start with Tara. Thanks, Cam. Uh, in an alternate reality, they would pay me, someone would pay me to read sci-fi novels. <laughs> I don't know who, but that, that would be my alternative career choice, top choice. Do you want my regular introduction as well? <laughs> yeah, that'd be good, but it's great to have another sci-fi novel fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, in my normal reality, I'm Professor of Neurodegeneration and the Deputy Director of the Centre for Discovery Brain Sciences up here at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm a group leader in our UK Dementia Research Institute, and we study Alzheimer's disease and in particular synaptic degeneration and synaptic resilience. Thanks, Tara. Um, should we um, have an introduction from Claire? Hi, hi, um, Cam. Hi, everyone. I'm Claire Sir, and I'm Professor of Dementia Studies and the Director of the Centre for Dementia Research at Leeds Beckett University. Uh, so the research that we do is dementia care and services focused research um, around a range of, of different areas. Um, my main interests are particularly around dementia, education and training and workforce development and also psychosocial interventions and um, how we can use them to improve care in formal care settings. Um, in an alternate reality, I think I would have loved to have been an archaeologist um, and yeah, probably spending a lot of time in fields on my hands and knees with a trowel in hand and a paintbrush, probably. So, yeah, that'd be me. That sounds like a very exciting alternate career. Um, I'm not sure if um, Louise is, um, she's got access to speak yet. So shall we move on to um, Tamarin's introduction? Yeah, thanks, Cam, and hi, everybody. Uh, my name's Tamrin Lashley. I'm Professor of Neuroscience at UCL, Director of Research at Queen Square Brain Bank, and my main focus of my research is uh, to study the postmortem human brains with a particular interest into the frontal temporal dementias, looking for clues of how you know these diseases um, actually uh, take hold in the brains themselves. Uh, so that's my actual reality. In my 
alternate reality, I guess, in hindsight of different events throughout my life, I would have probably chosen a, a career path in a special needs education and levelling up education for all those that find it difficult to access the normal career, uh, normal education we provide in the country. So that would be my alternate reality. Thank you, Tamarin. Um Louise, are you able to... Um... Are you able to speak at the moment or is it not accessed yet? Um, I've just sent Louise uh, an, Im- an email and um, I have invited her, but I'll, I'll keep trying. Okay, no worries. We'll move on to the first question then. And we'll get an introduction from Louise um, when she's able to um, access her microphone. Um, so now that we know who you all are and what you do, so you're all pretty amazing individuals who made the 1% of the 1% and you made it to Professor. So could you tell us a little bit about your path to where you are now and touch on whether you always planned to have a career in academia or if you spent time working outside of academia since obtaining your PhD? So let's start with Claire. So, um, yeah, I I suppose I, I kind of knew when I was at university that I and I wanted something to do with research, but I didn't really know you could really have a, a career in it, I guess. I, I perhaps thought maybe I... I don't think I imagined being an academic at, at that point. Um, and I actually had a... Um, when I'd finished my undergraduate degree, I had a place um, to do a, a PGCE to um, qualify to be a, a teacher. So I think I've taken Tamarin's... Um, alternate career and I was actually going to do English and special educational needs um, but then I got the opportunity um, that a PhD studentship came up in my department with um, Professor Tom Kitwood who had been my psychology lecturer and my dissertation supervisor um, on undergraduate level um, and then I was fortunate to get that and I've kind of never looked back really I think at one point I did want to be a, a researcher working on television programs like Horizon and things so I think I've always thought about doing some kind of research but I, I don't think I ever thought I'd be the person doing the research they might put on a TV program like Horizon um, and I haven't really spent any time working outside of academia um, you know I, I've followed a very traditional academic career route really um, so I haven't done that so it's almost as if, you know, you were drawn to research but didn't necessarily plan for a career in academia, which is quite interesting because it's something that I hear quite a lot that, you know, it's not something that people necessarily plan, but they just follow what they're interested in and that's the path that they end up going down. Um, Tamarin, how about you? Can you tell us a little bit about your path to where you are now? Yeah, sure. So... I didn't really plan to set out in academia either. Um, so when I was doing my undergrad, I had sort of a focus of uh, that I wanted to do some kind of forensic science career. Um, and as we know, it's quite difficult to to set out in that kind of career. So I actually got a job as a research technician at the National Institute of Medical Research in Mill Hill. Um, just to get lab experience. I didn't do too great in my undergraduate. So the, you know, the opportunity of going directly into a PhD wasn't there at that time. So I thought, well, let me go and get a a research technician uh, position if I can, which I was successful in doing to get the lab experience, see whether I liked working in the lab. Um, So I worked there for three years on spinal cord regeneration. Um, and then obviously, as as we all know, grant funding comes to an end and I needed to look for an, uh, another position. Um, and I moved to the Institute of Neurology um, again as a, as a research technician for one of the pathologists, Professor Avez, who worked there at the time. Um, and again, I was looking for PhD positions, but, you know, people just laughed at my <laughs> undergrad result. And I thought, well, OK, maybe a PhD is not for me. Um, so I was quite happy working as the technician um, and then it was actually Professor Avez that turned around and said look while you're doing the work anyway we might as well register you for a PhD so so I did do that and took my PhD part-time whilst I was running the routine histology for the brain bank at the time Um, and then yeah completed my PhD thought about more projects uh, with Professor Avez did a few postdocs and and the rest is history really so I never really 
set out to to be where I am um and I don't really think I chose dementia research to be honest I just sort of started in there and and never left basically so that's really interesting because similarly you also didn't plan to have a career in academia but I know that you spent most of your career at UCL Mm -hmm. and you've just kind of taken the opportunities that have come your way and followed what you're interested in as well yeah, I, I think that I think that helps. If you're enjoying what you're doing, then I think you you put more effort and um, not necessarily work harder at it. But I think things come easier if you are enjoying it. So, yeah, definitely. I feel like sometimes it's easier to be motivated in, especially in this type of career, if it if what you're doing is what you're really interested in and it's your passion. Mm-hmm. Um, should we, um, how about Tara? Um, I know that Louise has been able to join us now, but we'll, we'll speak with Tara first and then we'll um, get an introduction from Louise. So Tara, can you tell us a little bit about your path? Yeah, sure. So I'm from a very small town in Texas and I went to undergraduate university at the University of Texas at Austin. And to say I was planning a career in academia, it was definitely not. I wanted to be a scientist, but I didn't really know at all what that meant. I had no idea even what a PhD was really when I started. So after undergraduate school, I did a year abroad and during my undergrad, I did a year abroad in France in Toulouse. And that's where I met my now partner and um, went back to Texas to finish undergrad and then just told all my advisors that I was going to go to Oxford for PhD work because that's where my partner was living. And they all laughed at me and said, how are you going to pay for it? And I got a couple of scholarships and did move to Oxford and was very lucky to um, have some support in that from my PhD mentor, Colin Blakemore. And after PhD, I had chatted with a couple of people during the PhD at various meetings and seminars and heard about some fantastic work going on in Boston. So I went over to interview with Zhang Ho Cha and ended up while I was there falling in love with another PI there and his microscopes. (laughs) So I ended up meeting my postdoc mentor, Brad Hyman, who was also incredibly supportive, stayed there for postdoc for two years. And then Brad recruited me as a junior faculty member. So I ended up being in Boston for nine years before coming to Edinburgh to bring the group here. So you've had some pretty big international moves then, um, which is quite different to Tamarin, who's spent most of her career at UCL. Um, Should we get um, an introduction from Louise? So Louise, our first question, was if you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. And also as an additional question, in an alternate reality, what would your career be and why? Yeah, thank you very much. I'm sorry to have been delayed. It was complicated for me. Um, So I'm a professor of neuroscience, oh, biochemistry really, but um, director of neuroscience at the University of Sussex. And um, my main work really is looking at protein misfolding and how it's involved in Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. Um, And I had a little bit of time to think while everyone else was talking about what they would have done instead. And I always find it very difficult to think what else I would have done. But I think I'd quite like to have been roaming through the undergrowth in the jungle looking at animals and 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 watching monkeys and looking at animal behaviour if I'd had, had maybe an alternative opportunity. So I think that's what I would have done. Um, but it sort of leads on to the other question you were asking about... Um, about um, our career trajectories and just you know in a way one of the things that I think often think is I I carried on being a research scientist because I couldn't think what else I would do uh, which probably isn't a great way of sort of strategically thinking about your career but it is probably quite true that that's sort of what I did I just I enjoyed what I do and I couldn't quite think of of making the effort to go in a different direction. I feel like that's a common theme that's coming across is that you all really uh, enjoy what you're doing and you're really passionate about what you're doing and you see that as kind of a key necessity in order to carry on in this career is to have that passion and have that interest in what you're doing. Um, So I'll move on to the next question. So now that we know how each of you got to where you are now, do any of you feel like you ever got stuck at any particular stage in your career and if so, what happened to help you get out of that? So, Tamarin, let's start with you first. Uh, I think, that, yeah, a good question. I don't feel like I got 
particularly stuck at any any parts throughout the career because I didn't really have an objective to go to the next stage of the career per se um so in yeah looking back I guess probably the stickiest sort of situation where I was about to run out of funding was probably after my second second third postdoc um when Professor Rivers was retiring um, so I think it was like a, a do or die situ- situation, whether I, as Louise said, think about something else that we could potentially do, or do I think of, you know, independent research ideas to take forward for a fellowship. And I actually spent quite a lot of time thinking, you know, what are the transferable skills I could go and do something else? Or or if I don't give it a go to apply for my own independent funding, would I regret it later in life? Um And I thought, no, probably I would regret it if I don't give it a go. If I don't get it, that's fine. I can go and do something else. I didn't know what at the time. Um, So I sort of stuck my neck out and applied for my first um, junior fellowship and was successful. So I don't I think that was probably the the stage where I thought, you know, is this for me or isn't this for me? But as as it turns out, you know, I was successful, successful in obtaining the junior fellowship. So I don't feel like I was particularly stuck. but then I didn't have, like I said, I didn't really know that I was going to progress to a professor either. So like, it's kind of a difficult question to answer. Yeah, I feel like um, so when you were coming to like facing the end of your funding and you were thinking about potentially what your transferable skills were, did you actually spend any time looking for options outside of academia or did it not get to that stage yet? Um, I did sort of have sort of like a superficial look around. I wouldn't say I I took anything, you know, looked at anything in depth. Um, I think because I was trying to think of independent research ideas to take forward as well. Um, It it also coincided with my husband setting up his own business. So things were quite hectic at the time anyway. Um, So, no, it was kind of a panic do or die situation, really, I have to say. So, no, I did look, but yeah, I didn't really, nothing sort of tickled my fancy to take on a, as a career after I'd been in the lab as, as, as sort of a senior postdoc. So I thought, no, I've got to give this independent career sort of a go and see if my my ideas for the research actually, you know, uh, were worth pursuing. So I'm glad AIUK thought they were worth pursuing because I wouldn't be sat here talking to you now. <laughs> Yeah, clearly it really worked out. And um, Louise, how about you? Did you ever feel that you got stuck at any particular stage in your career? I feel like I got stuck lots of times, actually. I think um, there were many times when I thought, gosh, what else can I do? And, you know, difficulties with funding, um, rejections, um, you know, knockbacks in papers and that sort of thing. I've often, I think that it's a really difficult career because, um, you're constantly being sort of assessed and judged. And so actually it can be really difficult. Um, And I've had times um, during um, the time that I've been running a research group when I've had no one in the lab and then I've had lots of people in the lab and back and forth. Um, And a little while ago um, at Sussex, we did a sort of career trajectory. And it was really interesting to sort of look at that, those ups and downs, because I think it's really important to sort of share um, those difficulties that we've all gone through when things just don't seem to be going as you hoped they would and then somehow and it's hard to say exactly how you come out of it and and you just get one good reviewer comment or something that you know makes you feel a bit better about things and then things start to go up again but it definitely is a roller coaster I would say yeah I've, I've often heard um, academia described as having many peaks and troughs but you know for some of us it can often feel like there are more troughs than there are peaks um Claire how about you did you ever feel like you got stuck at any stage in your career um yeah I think there there were a couple of times where I felt not stuck because I I think similar to others I I don't think I've I've ever thought oh I must get to you know reader I must get to professor it it wasn't something that's driven how I've worked um, but I think you you do kind of think about progression. I think just because it's like, what's the next challenge and what's the new things that um, I want to be able to do? So I think I did feel a little bit stuck, I suppose, when I was a senior lecturer. 
um, because I wanted to be doing more research. Um, but the, there was just a very high sort of administration and teaching workload. And, and I'm sure many people um, who've, who've worked in those positions feel exactly the same. And it, it's really difficult to kind of move forward to think about how you would progress onto a, a reader and then a, a professor role when you know that you need to be doing more research and getting more publications to be able to do that. And it's it's like, where do I find the time to to be able to do this because um you know there just doesn't seem to be the the hours in the day and the days in the week to to be able to do that amongst the other demands um so i, I guess it's just uh, you know those sorts of managing time demands to be able to um i suppose work on your cv and and develop in the areas that you feel you need to to, to progress that can be the the real challenge and i again i think i suppose i, I felt similar when i was in a, a reader position um i it, it was still very difficult and i still had quite a lot of managerial responsibilities and um slightly reduced teaching but again it was still difficult to find the time particularly for publications at, at that stage um but I, I think my move to um to leeds beckett and the the post i have now which is a, a sort of pure research professor role and i do do teaching um but there's not big teaching demands on me i kind of volunteer to do the teaching that i want to do and i do do quite a bit of it in phd supervision but i feel like i've got a much more balanced um role now but um i i guess you just have less control over how you spend your time um when you are less senior and um it becomes more difficult i think to be able to work on those areas um, and spend time doing things that can help develop your CV if you've got big demands on your, your time to be doing other things. Um, and I think, you know, learning the skills and teaching and lecturing is really important. And for us as researchers, we do need to be sharing our research with students and inspiring them to, to want to do research or to apply that. Um, but I think it, it's nice to be able to have a bit more of a balance um, sometimes, and that can be really difficult. Yeah, I was actually quite keen to ask you whether the um, whether that was what prompted your move to Leeds Beckett from Bradford was to to redistribute kind of that balance um, from the admin and teaching to more to more research. Partly, I mean, I think I'd been at Bradford for sixteen years, and and obviously um, it had been a great place to be. But I I think I was ready for that kind of new challenge. Um, a little bit so I, I was ready to to do something new and I saw the professorship post that um come up and there was kind of um quite a bit of freedom they weren't in a particular area there wasn't a you know it wasn't about setting up a new research center either and saying oh we want to you know they were very open about that they were kind of health professorships advertised and they were open to um people working in different areas of health so uh, it felt like a good move for me because there wasn't a a pressure also that we want you to set up a big research centre when you arrive and you know that that we need you to be doing this that and the other it was just a chance I think to breathe and, and be a professor for a while and the the centre sort of naturally grown and, and happened as part of that rather than it being something I was tasked with at the start which would have again taken up you know diverted my time from being able to to do things such as work on publications and and grants so yeah I, I think that's really helped having a much more flexible role can I, can I chip in with a follow-up question I mean this applies to anybody Do you, I mean obviously there's always been this traditional view that that moving around is is good for your career I think the only thing that somebody asked me the other day was or told me the other day was that it, it helped it helped how other people perceived them that when they'd gone from doing a PhD and progressed in the same institution, everybody still thought of them as, it was Martin who talked about it, he, he still had colleagues that called him Young Rosser because he'd been there forever. Um, and whether moving to a new place allows you to kind of fill the shoes of that senior position and be perceived in that way a little bit more. I don't know if anybody has a comment on that. Yeah, if I could comment on that, because I actually asked Martin Rosser for advice when I was applying for my um my own fellowship so obviously I've been at UCL for 20 well 23 years this year um so I think it actually depends what discipline you work in um and what techniques you want to to learn moving forward obviously my research is based on post-mortem human brain so I couldn't really 
set up another brain bank with over 2000 brains by myself elsewhere um so i think as long as you can justify why you need to stay in the one place and quite surprisingly when i went around and asked advice from many of the senior professors at ucl at the time a lot of them to my surprise hadn't moved from ucl they were all based at ucl from the beginning um but i definitely think it depends on your life circumstances as well so i'd got three young children my husband had got his own business as well so it was difficult for us to move even somewhere else in the uk let alone move countries so i think if you can justify it why you need to stay in the one place but obviously if you need to learn a technique and there's an expert somewhere else at a different university or a different country then i think that you know justifies the move as well so i think it's it's individual really on on where you see your research progressing to i guess i don't know what others think about that i i can completely see that and also as well i think there was we've done a survey recently in i start and what came up was particularly in the UK and US, when asked the question, did they feel they had to move there for their career? It was a much lower proportion of people that said they had compared to those who responded who were in um, India and Brazil um, and uh, parts of Africa and said felt that they had to move to progress their career. Sorry, Cam, you by all means, <laughs> I'll shut up now. I know we've kind of jumped onto the next question, but let's Sorry. Let Tara, let, let's let Tara answer the previous one first. So, Tara, just out of interest, did you feel like you got stuck at any particular stage in your career? Yeah, definitely. I, I realized I didn't really answer the part of the first question about did I ever leave academia? And the answer is no. I went from being a student and just never left university. But in terms of getting stuck, definitely. The, the point that I will never forget is when my first child was born and he was three months old and you only get technically eight weeks off of maternity leave in the States, but you know, my generous uh, university let me have 12 weeks off and then I had to take him to nursery and go back to work. And I just didn't think I could do it. So I went to my my mentor at the time. I had a, I was an instructor, but I was a very, very, very junior faculty member. And I went to Brad and said, look, I think I wanna be an EM technician. I think I just wanna sit in a, on an EM and, and do, you know, select sections and take images because then I can spend more time with my baby and you know, I can, I can work part time or I can, uh, you know, just have actually a job that you leave there and only do when you're there and not have to take it with you everywhere. And I will never forget what he said. He said, just don't worry about it. He said, you're brilliant. You will succeed in this job if you want to. Why don't you come back three days a week and see how you feel and then maybe come back four days a week and see how you feel. And if he hadn't have suggested that, I think I would have left. And I'm really glad I didn't because I think this is the best job ever. That's a good point because actually, so you've mentioned that that it was the supportive environment that really helped you to pursue that and to push through. And without that, you might not have progressed in academia. You might not have pursued it. Is that would you say that that was the situation? Oh yeah, for sure. I would have done something else. Would have tried to become a technician or or left academia um, for sure if I hadn't had that support. So would you would you have any particular advice that you'd give to anyone who might be currently transitioning to try and set up their own lab or to to try and make that transition to independence? Do you think that perhaps the most important thing is to kind of have that supportive environment, that support from more senior colleagues around them? That's definitely a huge part of it, I think, to success or or building your own network, even if it's not within your institution. Like when um when I was new in Edinburgh, I was lucky enough to become a member of the Fence Cavalry Network of Excellence, which is a group of people who are at that stage just setting up their own groups. And we were a hugely wonderful source of support for each other, reading each other's grants and supporting each other and being there and answering questions and, you know, circulating invites for speaking and that kind of thing. So if you don't have it locally, make your own support network, because otherwise I think it's practically impossible to, to get to the top in this field. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. Um, so we were just touching on earlier about um, moving in order to uh, have a successful career in academia. So we know that many early career researchers particularly um, have been advised that to progress in academia, that they need to, to move to work to another lab or another institution after their PhD. And I feel like this is particularly encouraged for those who wish to apply for fellowships. And it's often some feedback that people get or some criticism that people get on their fellowship applications if they decide that they want to stay within the same lab as their PhD or within the same institution. So I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on this. And do you think moving labs or institutions is necessary for career progression in academia? 
because I know that some of you have moved and some of you um, haven't. So, Louise, um, let's start with you. So, yes, I did move. So um, after my PhD, I went and spent um, 18 months working in Canada um, at the University of Toronto. And then um, I worked in Cambridge and then um, and then in Sussex. Um, but I do um, I mean, I found that very helpful. And it was at a time of my life that it, it worked for me. I had my children after I'd been to Canada. And so it worked out well. But I think the um, I, I would hope that maybe the insistence on people moving for fellowships and so on will, will have um, declined a little bit because it really isn't very inclusive um, and it particularly affects um, women who maybe have re reasons why they might not want to move on. And, I, I mean, everybody, actually. Um, and I think um, it really does need to... Um, we do all need to take into account that um, we're not just scientists, that we're also... Um, you know parts of a family um and all of that um those aspects that we're rounded people that we have lives outside of academia that are really important um and we need to be happy in order to do our best work so i i i would i would rail against that insistence that you have to move in order to succeed i think i think that just isn't very inclusive yeah i i think i agree with that that having just general demands to move it's not very um, inclusive kind of policy I guess um, but it's interesting that you did move within your career but that the timing was really really important for that and I think certainly for for early early career researchers that might be something that can be a benefit to them um, and you know the they're perhaps more flexible at that stage in their career but certainly the timing is important um, if they are going to move. Um, Tara so you've had some pretty big international um, moves in your career um, do you think that it's something that is necessary for career progression? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I completely agree with Louise that it's not inclusive as an unwritten or sometimes written policy that people should move. I personally am a bit of a wandering spirit, and so I've loved I've loved that aspect and the ability to go lots of places and see people. I think at the moment, even though I don't, I agree it shouldn't be. I think there's still a, a strong drive to have people have some mobility in their careers, not just because of the way they are perceived locally but because of the way you're perceived externally so i had stayed in boston for nine years and when i was applying for my first grants in edinburgh even though i'd been running a group in boston for seven of those years i got told well you're just brad's postdoc so i don't see how you're going to be getting independent funding um so i think that practically it, it, it's still at least well this was now a few years ago but it might still be out there but i think there are some clever ways people can try and get around this so someone who's brilliant who i work with got around this because they had personal reasons to want to stay at a certain geographical location and in their fellowship they put in some secondments in other institutions and what that shows is that you're going to be working internationally and it also gives you a little bit of experience with another system if you're in the same university for your entire career, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. You just don't, aren't, and in some ways it's gotta be much easier because you don't have to figure out all these different systems, but I think it might help the perception by grant panels that you're making the effort to learn different systems and different uh, spaces and work internationally by collaborating, you know, and you can maybe highlight that in your CV instead of actually moving because as Louise points out, it's not a very fair thing to have to do if you have a family or other reasons to stay. So perhaps a, a actual physical move isn't necessary, but it's more about showing independence from previous supervisors. And, and certainly if applying for future grants, that's something that you might want to find ways to demonstrate. Yeah. Um, so Tamarin, um, so you mentioned earlier that um, if, if you can justify staying in the same place, then that would be okay. But it might be necessary if you want to go and learn new skills, for example, um, but these can all, I think these are now encouraged in like fellowship applications, for example, where you can go uh, for a few months to another institution and learn those skills, but bring them back. So I do see that perhaps the, the outlook is changing a little bit, but I'm interested to know what you think about this. Yeah, I agree. And I completely agree with what Louise and Tara have, have just said. And I think actually Tara's suggestion of putting secondments down, if that is to learn a new skill and maybe just go for an, a, another couple of months to a different lab to do that and then bring it back to the to your own lab is, is a good way of, of, of dealing with that sort of aspect of things. I mean, I did manage to go to New York 
spend some time at New York University during my PhD, although I was pregnant with my first child at the time. So I did get an opportunity to spend some time in a different lab. But I think um, Tara's suggestion for the previous question is building your networks. And that can all, always be sort of embedded into a fellowship application that you've built networks around your independent research ideas. You've got the support around whatever you want to, to study, I think, can also help with those applications as well. So even though you're based at one university, you have the support or mentors from, from different places to support you moving forward, I think is, is a good thing as well. But I think everybody's situation's different and everybody's personal circumstances are different. So I don't think there's one size fits all for, for this at all in any way, shape or form. So I think as long as you can just justify in your applications why you're doing it a particular way, I don't think reviewers can, can really, you know, they can suggest better ways if they see better ways but I think as long as you have the justification there then I think you know whichever way works for you is okay. Yeah so I feel like building networks is really coming across as the important thing um, to establish independence and that, that doesn't necessarily mean having to, to move even if perhaps you can have experience in another lab it doesn't mean actually having to physically move there for a postdoc position for example. Um, and finally Claire um, what are your opinions on this? Do you think that it's necessary to move um, institutions for your career progression? I, I think it's a bit different in the sort of care and services research field because I don't think that's the sort of feedback you would get on a, a sort of postdoc application that um, that you should, you know, it, it would be looked favourably upon if you moved institutions. Um, I think in my field it's much more are you in the right place with the right support to be able to do the project that you want to do? And and I think it is a similar thing to what everybody else has been saying about having the right network. So it may be that your um, PhD supervisor, you're carrying on some of your doctoral work or um, and it's an expansion of that area. So they would make a, a clear person to support you through a postdoc, but it, it would then be building up that group of people around you to give you other skills and knowledge. So maybe you are using a different... Um, data analysis technique or you want to recruit from sites beyond the sort of locality of where you're based so maybe building networks elsewhere for those purposes um and i think that's good for you in sort of, sort of building future careers as well but you know beyond a, a postdoc application i think building networks and having um other people that you collaborate with um and who you can work with and and um sort of expanding those networks out is really important for career development certainly a lot of the research that I do now all of it's collaborative but um, I, you know the number of collaborations I've got working with teams all over the country um, and uh, you know that that's part and parcel of how we all work now I think and so the sooner you can build those networks and people go oh I know somebody who does, has done some really good work in that area. I know somebody who's got expertise in using ethnography or um, certain kinds of data collection methods. They'd they'd be really good to be on our team for this grant application. So I think that's part of, um, you know, sort of career building is is getting yourself known and and working with people across different networks who then might invite you to also be on their grant applications because they can see what you might bring as an independent researcher. So that's interesting that, you know, perhaps different fields might have different expectations, but what really comes across is that building networks is, is the, the really important factor. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss out the next question because we've got um, another two questions and I want to make sure that we've got enough time at the end um, for questions from the listeners. Um, and I feel like we've pretty much answered that next question anyway. Um, so what I think is that it's pretty easy to assume that all early career researchers want to progress um, to become a lecturer and then professors, and not all of them do. Um, many may be happy to continue as a postdoc, for example, because they really, really enjoy the research that they're doing, but they feel that they have to progress to being a lecturer because it offers more job security and stability. So I'm interested to know whether you think that um, permanent postdoc position should be a thing. And if so, who should be responsible for driving that forward? Should it be the institutions? Should it be funders? And how do you think we need to reframe our attitudes to career progress in order to consider this? And do you know whether there are any lessons that we can learn from other countries that might have 
different models, um, the different frameworks that they, they base academia on. Um, so Claire, let's start with you. I mean, I think definitely that, um, you know, people should have that freedom of choice uh, and there shouldn't be an expectation that, you know, everybody is driven to just be on the next step of the career ladder and, you know, oh, I, I must get onto this, you know, to be a senior lecturer or a reader or a professor because that doesn't reflect you as, an, as a researcher and as an academic. It doesn't make your research any better because you do it as a professor versus as a, a postdoc. Um, I think it's about people having that flexibility to choose what, what works for them. And some people are very passionate and they want to be doing the on-the-ground work and doing the data analysis and collecting data. And, and I think you do get more removed from that. Certainly, you you know, in a professorial role, you are managing the research. And if that's not your thing, then, um, you know, we shouldn't be expecting that people will all want to move to do that. Um, in terms of how people can stay and, and be happy at, at whatever level they want to be we're lucky at, at Leeds Beckett that uh, uh, there are two permanent um, postdoc researchers um, who work in um, my centre um, so Laura Boy and, and Rachel Kelly um, Laura's a, a research fellow and Rachel's a senior research fellow and they are in permanent positions um, because that was as I've built you know as the university supported me to build a, a centre um, what they asked what things would help and I said it'd be really great to have a, a couple of postdoc um, posts to start with um, and they were funded on a fixed term basis to start with with a view that the university would see how that went and if we brought in income they would look to make them permanent and they did that after after two years of funding them as fixed term contracts so I think I'm lucky in that sense that we, I do have that stability that um, those two staff members have and so they that's that's up to them I think both of them will be looking to um, to progress um, through career trajectories but there's no pressure on them if, if they're happy as a research fellow or a senior research fellow then there, there's no pressure on them to say you've got to be doing a reader application or we expect you to be a professor um, so I think I'm lucky in that sense that we we do have that that freedom and flexibility and in terms of who funds it I, I think you know obviously universities have to to fund permanent positions um, I think they do have to to take a chance and, and um, I think my department shows it's possible to do that we've got really good income generation that we're able to actually do better because often you can't put in an, an application as a, a lead applicant if you don't have a permanent contract and so people end up in that endless revolving door of you don't have enough experience to lead on a grant application but I can't lead on a grant application to get that experience because I don't have a permanent contract and so I can't you know apply for a grant that might be a two or three year grant where I'm costed on a 20% uh, of my total time if I've only got 12 months left on a, a contract so I think you know we've we've got to work collectively as a system so I think there's a responsibility for us as more senior academics to be making a case to our universities to say this is what we need um we we risk losing people if we have this revolving door of people coming and going on fixed term contracts um and I think it's really important that that they in, invest um in that but also that funders do um, obviously support that where they can but we we have to work on the basis that funders are only ever going to fund usually short-term amounts of funding for particular research projects unless you get um, a lab funded as you might do in other areas but certainly in my field it would be very rare for a, a full team to be funded. Yeah I wonder as well whether um, that revolving door of fixed-term contracts that you mentioned like how that can you know, ultimately stifle scientific progress. Um, so Tamarin, um, what are your thoughts on whether you think a permanent postdoc position should be a thing? And if so, who would be driving that forward? Yeah, I think uh, I think we need to look at it, academia, more uh, as a business model. So you wouldn't get any, you know, uh, industry business model employing somebody for three years, training them for three years, and then potentially losing that person once they've um, upskilled themselves for a particular technique or a particular research project. So I think having permanent postdoc positions is, should be a necessity in academia. 
um, to drive the research and the science forward, really, because we can spend, as I said, three years training somebody to run a particular thing and then they're left and we have to train somebody new once we've got more funding for that project or that idea moving forward. Um, who should be driving it? I think, as Claire said, as senior academics, we should probably be taking this in our hands, I guess, and asking for change um, from our institutions and maybe working with funders to see how solutions could be made around making permanent postdoc positions. And I think looking at it from a career development point of view, having gone through being a um, postdoc, a associate professor and now professor, I've often found that I, I've had to sort of upskill set myself for the different positions. So as Claire said, as a professor now, I've spent most of my time managing my team um, and less time in the lab, although I do try and put aside at least two days a week to go back into the lab and, and carry out experience myself because that's what I've trained to do and that's what I love to do. Um, but I've certainly had to spend time um, learning how to manage a team um, to the best of my abilities. Um, so for me, I think if the option was there for a permanent postdoc position when I was at that stage, I think I would have been happy to stay as a permanent postdoc because I just love being in the lab. Um, so I think we do need to make a change. And I think it's down to both the institutions and funders and us as senior academics to drive drive this forward in some way. Yeah, I guess it's always going to be a question of funding, isn't it? Because of the current model that academia is kind of based on. Um, we rely on grants in order to fund current short-term contracts for, for postdocs. So where would the funding come from? And that's something that maybe institutions and funders need to work together to come up with a solution. Um, Tara, uh, what, what do you think? Do you think that um, permanent postdoc positions should be a thing? Yes, I, in a way I do. I think that academia, like our traditional academic tenure system is an incredibly privileged system. There aren't very many jobs where you get a, a job essentially for life. And then the you were looking, you were talking about how comparing other countries, there are some countries in Europe where your post, if you are an academic, comes with some permanent staff positions and they can be, from my understanding, technicians or postdocs. And in some ways that's great because you've got that longevity in your lab of the skills and you, and you know, that, that these that provides a career path for staff scientists as a, a long-term career. But in some cases I've heard it doesn't work brilliantly. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't know if that's the answer, but I think you're absolutely right, Cam, that it would have to be collaboration between industry, I mean, not industry, funders and um, institutions to make that position tenable so for example one thing i can think of that i haven't had any traction with yet but i think it might be it might be a one model to think about as an ecosystem is if we can first of all convince the funders that just because a brand new postdoc is cheaper it doesn't necessarily mean that's the best value for the grant right so funders can accept that you can pay higher salaries than a, a brand new postdoc salary and also maybe the institution can then underwrite their career saying as long as you and your supervisor or your line manager can find funding uh we will keep you on as a permanent staff member with some buffer of some number of years to, to, to pay that the university might pay their salary, for example, while more funding was sought, that kind of thing. I think that might be a nice balance so that you're linked to projects and sure it was going to be productive and it was funded with consumables and you weren't just sitting in a lab with no funding to do anything, but you also have that backup so you don't have to leave and, and move because postdocs in, in many ways are the lifeblood of the actual day-to-day -day work in the lab. So we want to make that a career path. And I absolutely think it's a lovely path. I agree with Tam. I, I do spend a couple of days a week in the lab if I can. And I think it's a, an ideal career and <laughs> I think we should support it and value it. Yeah. Well, there we go. We probably have a, a potential solution. Um, Louise, uh, what are your thoughts on, on permanent postdoc positions? Well, I think a lot of it's been covered already. And I actually think it's really important at least to, to, provide that opportunity um i i have several postdocs that have worked with me who um do want to stay as postdocs and i think what i really wanted to say is how valuable those people are and how important it is not to lose their expertise and it's it's frustrating not to be able to provide that opportunity for people to stay as postdocs if they want to and you know be able to stay at the bench doing the things that they were trained to do and the things that they're really good at um so i i'm i don't know what the answer is in terms of funding though and i think 
you know, um, certainly I don't know about other people's universities, but universities in general at the moment are undergoing lots of financial pressures. And I think, you know, it's really hard to think about how um, the university would would fund um, permanent postdocs, but whether that's something that some of the research councils or or charities might consider um, doing, particularly in Alzheimer's disease research, I think, you know, that that incredible expertise that people build up would be really impressive if we could find a way of keeping in, in the so I think it'd be a really good so and obviously what we to do is to support those those people choices that they want to become they want to carry on as a postdoc so I'm not suggesting that we try and keep people you know when they want to progress um and in into a um another Role. But, you know, if, if that's the choice of the individual, I think it would be really good if there was a mechanism by which we could keep people on. OK, so in the interest of time so that we have enough uh, time for questions from the listeners, I just want in my last question, um, in just one or two sentences, what advice would you give to postdocs or research fellows who may feel that they're stuck and not progressing through their careers, perhaps how they wanted to or how they might have expected to? So just in one or two sentences, um, what would your advice be? So let's start with Tamarin. Um, I, th I just think in a couple of sentences, it would be to network um, and talk about your career path with either mentors at your university or reach out and speak to other people that are in your discipline. Um, yeah, to network and talk, really. And Louise? I think um, I think this is probably for all all different um, roles and perspectives is is just to, to ensure that you're um, somebody who's surrounded by um, supportive um, environment people who are, are interested in your career and are interested in helping you um, and supporting you for what you decide you want to do so yeah I mean in a way the same sort of thing as networking but yeah that that level of support that I think is really important that would mean that not only would you be able to carry on, but also feel better about where you currently are and um, and how much you're valued as that in that role. And Claire, what advice would you give? Yeah, those were my two points that everybody has, has already said. Um, I think another thing would be to, to look at your CV and, and take work out where the gaps are in the experience that you want to get and seek out and take whatever opportunities you can. So don't be afraid to ask um, and and speak to that supportive network you've got and say, look, I really want to develop this area. How can I do that? Um, and, and, you know, say yes, put yourself forward for things. Don't be afraid to get in touch with people and build those networks and ask if you can, you know, I really want to do this. Could I come and join your team for a bit to, to learn more about that? So I, I'd say put yourself out there and, and you know make connections um people quite often say yes if they're the right supportive people they'll they'll want to help you even if they're not in your immediate uh, sort of team or university and finally tara thank you so two sentences if you love it keep going persevere it's not the career path for everyone but it is amazing so keep trying but on the other hand the second sentence is don't be afraid to leave everyone i know who has left academia for science in other venues or industry or gone into other careers has absolutely loved it and not regretted it at all so that that would be it <laughs> that's excellent advice and i've just written a blog on leaving academia so um adam do we have time for any questions from the audience uh, we do. Uh, we can take a few questions. So if you're listening and you have a question for any of our speakers uh, if, in the bottom row of your um, app, you should see the heart button with a little um, plus next to it. If you tap on that, I think raise your hand is one of the options there and then we can activate your microphone. Uh, we did have a question from Yvonne Couch, uh, although she's uh, sent me this via text message. So I'll put this to you now. Um, she says she's in a super noisy lab, so she can't turn on her microphone, but she'd like to know um, whether any, what you think uh, about how the landscape has changed? How, how is it different for a postdoc now, say, to, to, you know, four or five years ago? Has the landscape changed for postdocs um, in terms of how easy or harder it is to progress? 
Um, why, why don't we put that to you first, Louise? Gosh, oh, that's a really hard you... question because I... <laughs> that's a really hard question. I, I think... Um... I think in a way it felt a bit more straightforward when I was a postdoc. Um, I think I've already said that I didn't really have a sort of strategic plan. And I think people now do have strategic plans. They're a bit clearer about the next and how they, how they need to, um, how they need to progress and move on. And, and I don't know why. I Honestly, I don't know if I know the answer to this. I think I'm going to have to pass on to someone else. But I, I just don't feel like I really thought about it. I just I just did. Um, and it sort of worked out. It was very haphazard. Um, and there was a huge amount of luck involved. So that's not very helpful at all. Sorry. No, I, I think you're right. I think, look, being in the right place at the right time and... Uh, look definitely comes into it. I, I don't know if other people would agree. I mean, of course, you can make your own look. Uh, Tara, what, what, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I was talking to my friend and colleague, Claire Drawn earlier, and she said luck is a huge part of it, but hard work is another huge part. So you're unlikely to to succeed without the hard work, and hopefully you get the luck. In terms of how postdocs have changed over the past few years, unfortunately, I would say it's harder to get fellowships right now because of the you know, Brexit and economic climate. So I think it's a bit tougher to progress at the moment, but that could just be my perception. Uh, no, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, we've had a particularly anybody who relies on the charities for funding. We have had a year of without funding. And of course, that's created a gap. So it's doubled up the number of people applying, applying right now. So something that's come up, um, just a reminder to anybody to uh, raise your hand if you want to speak and we'll uh, turn on your microphone so you can ask your question something that came up um one of the reasons why we're even putting this focus on this week um was from a few of our listeners who've contributed to the podcasts we've produced this week which is this this feeling of uh, i think it was three of them had had six contracts um that ranged in length from six months to two years and feeling like they they obviously had set, put down roots, but then that was always a limiting factor because they were always stuck only being able to look at contracts and new jobs that were within a certain distance of where they were uh, and just found it challenging. So many were dependent upon having partners then who who had permanent jobs to just be able to do practical things like buy new cars and get a mortgage and, and things like that. Um, what would you say to anybody who's feeling kind of, I don't know if this question's been asked, that, that's that's got to the end of this, that's had a fellowship and is now coming towards the end of their senior fellowship about what they do next, those, those that are panicking. Um, ooh, I've got to put this to somebody, haven't I? Um, what about um, Tamron? So let's let's give you a, a scenario. So you're on your you've done four postdoc positions. You've just coming to the end this year of your senior postdoc and and you, you know, you're not sure what comes next. Where do you go from there? Oh, I think that was the, the kind of situation I found myself in anyway. So I had managed ma major panic attack, to be honest. But then I just, you know, made meetings with all the senior professors at UCL and went and discussed my career, how my career progressed so far, where I thought I could see myself fitting into either known projects that were already carrying out at UCL, what I would like to do as my independent research um, and that op sort of opened up opportunities to apply for funding or they directed me to different funding opportunities. Um, so I think you've got to go and, you know, I mean, these were, you know, like, like, like Martin Rosser, Nick Fox, John Hardy, although John was my head of department at the time. So although I hadn't worked closely with these senior professors at the time, I found it quite daunting because I'm not a naturally sort of outspoken will put myself you know at the forefront of things so for me it was really difficult and really challenging to do that but I just sat one day sent them all emails they were all very responsive and you know I'm, I think I spent the whole week just doing a t tour of UCL meeting people and getting their opinions around things so 
I think even if you find it difficult, people are quite receptive to want to help people um, progress in their careers if they see that it's going to be beneficial to them and maybe other projects in the university as well. So n never be afraid of, of going and speaking and seeking advice. Um, like I said, it was completely outside my comfort zone, but I think that was the turning point in my career where I actually realized actually I can do this if you know I put myself out there and come up with the ideas I, I have I've got a shot of doing it so yeah and I think one other piece of advice I, I would give for the for the last question as well um, about um, not progressing is don't compare yourself to other people um, and I think that's what I spent a lot of time doing um, as a junior postdoc is seeing other people progressing but then comparing my situation and my sort of area of expertise with other people that were, say, working in cell biology or genetics. And I don't think you can compare across different uh, disciplines either. Um, so I think, you know, don't compare yourself to others and go out and network and speak to people of how they can be supported with your career as well. Uh, you can't do it alone. You need the support of others. So, yeah, definitely get yourself out there and speak to others. And I, I guess that brings you back to this idea that that mentors aren't just something you know something that you have very early in your career that you can you can have a, a network of mentors mm -hmm. who you can go to at different times with different challenges and prepare this right from the earliest stages even as you you know we, we did a podcast at the earlier in the week from postdocs speaking back to PhD students to say is there anything you can do very early on in your career that will help you potentially uh, avoid this problem later down the line yeah definitely I mean and even now I've got I know my network of people who I can sort of rely on really to go to and I, I don't go to the same person to speak about the same thing so you know I'll have one person I know I can speak to about one certain topic um, but I've definitely got senior uh, professors at, uh, I, at the Institute of Neurology and UCL who I know you know I can drop an email can we just have a five minute chat um and they're just so supportive. Um, so reach out to people. Um, and likewise, I'm passing that forward now to, to people that are applying for their junior fellowships. I'm helping them with their applications, you know, listening to what their concerns, reservations are. If I can pass on any help to people coming through, then by all means, get in touch. I'm happy to, to you know, to, to help where I can. So. Thank you. Um, it doesn't look like everybody's been a bit shy today. It doesn't look like anybody's got any questions. So um, last call for, for questions. But Cam, is there do you want to do you want to summarize? Do you want to summarize the takeaways, do you think? I feel like um, it's very easy to feel like you're stuck at the postdoc stage. Um, but I really like all of the advice of, um, you know, building your own network, because I feel like I have seen a lot of people being advised to move and that can create issues and it can also stifle research in some ways because every time you have to move, you have to learn, you know, where is this piece of equipment? How does this work? And you have to deal with uh, moving and all of the challenges that, that that comes with. And you might be leaving your support network that you've established where you currently live, such as your family or friends that you have. Um, so I like the idea of building a network that is, independent from your PhD supervisor or your first postdoc supervisor and not necessarily having to move in order to do that. Um, I feel more hopeful after having this discussion. Um, I feel more positive. And I also like what Tara said about, you know, if you want to leave academia, that should be supported and um, we should be encouraging people to look outside of academia for their career progression as well. Absolutely. And, and I think the important point, hopefully, institutions and research, any research funders that might retrospectively be listening to this is to is to really think hard about how you can how you can fund things differently um, to, you know, to introduce that stability, which I think will really benefit researchers and people's careers for those that, you know, do want to stay in the one place and, and get on with doing the research. Is there any last points anybody would like to make before we wrap up today? I think I'd just like to make one more point about um, we've all been through quite a rough time over the last couple of years with COVID, but we can actually use that to our advantage with now. I mean, we don't even have telephones at UCL anymore. Everything's on Teams. But with the video calling, it, it's easier to get in touch with people. It's easier to just have a quick five, 10 minute call with people. Um, so look at the advantages of that 
uh, with networking, um, rather, you know, you can stay where you are and still be in touch with people. So definitely. And, and social, I mean, I mean, social media, of course, is evil, but it's also wonderful as well. And that, you know, as a, this real potential to allow you to connect with people, isn't it? And of course, on the Dementia Researcher website, we have bios on all of not only all of our fantastic panelists today, but lots of people who've contributed blogs and podcasts and things to our website. You can filter through those according to their different research field or where they work. Um, so and details of their Twitter accounts and contact details are all in there. So if you're looking for for somebody uh, to talk to, everybody who's got a bio on there has agreed to be contacted by uh, by listeners. So please do go and have a look at that as well if you looking for somebody who works in your field thank you so much uh cam for hosting with us today and also the podcasts and blogs and things you've contributed this week to our wonderful guests uh professor uh, tara spires jones professor claire sir professor tamarin lashley and of course professor um uh, louise serple i forgot your name then louise sorry about <laughs> thank you very much everybody thank and you. we'll we'll let you get back to your friday Thanks, Thanks everyone. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.